So I went into the lounge and then the Queen came through. She said, how are you, Dickie? I said, I'm all right, ma'am. She said, have you had a good journey down? <laughs> I said, well, I left, left at half past four this morning, ma'am. Well, she had a good laugh. She said, <laughs> she said, you better have a drink. <laughs> So I said, I'll have a glass of red wine, ma'am. Now, she drinks Campari and soda. So she said, I'll have a drink with you. So we had a drink. And we were nattering away, just telling tale like we are now. Then the rest of the guests came. And then we went through, ladies, had a magnificent lunch. Just sat at the oval table. I sat here, the Queen there, the retired headmistress, Prince Edward, and a lady in waiting. And we were just telling tale and nattering away. And... Uh, I didn't have the grapes after because I was frightened, you see. If, if I cut the grapes, they may have gone flying all over the queen. <laughs> and she said, you haven't had any grapes, Dickie? <laughs> I said, well, I didn't want them to go all over you, ma'am. She said, don't worry about that. The corgis would have seen them off. So we had a magnificent lunch, ladies. Then we went back into the lounge and the other guests went. There were just the Queen and I just sat there nattering away. We had coffee and, and then another cup of coffee and then another cup. And I left Buckingham Palace at 10 to 5. Aye, and I got my cab back to King's Cross and then my train back home to the north of England. And you know, ladies, that was the best day of my life. And money can't buy that. Our backgrounds were very different. Spike was born in India, the son of an Irish RSM in the Indian Army. When I first met him, he was Lance Sergeant Milligan Terence A, and one of the crew of a large 7.2-gun howitzer, which had been installed in a gun pit insecurely dug in the hard rock of a Tunisian plateau. His howitzer was being fired by a lanyard, that's a rope attached to the firing lever, which was used when the gun crew was not quite sure of what might happen. As the sergeant pulled the lanyard, the crew turned their backs to the gun as it fired. When they turned round, the gun had disappeared. At the time, I was in an artillery regiment deployed nearby, and I was sitting in a small wireless truck at the foot of a sizable cliff. Suddenly, there was an enormous noise as some monstrous object fell from the sky quite close to us. There was considerable confusion, and in the middle of it all, the flap of the truck was pulled open, and a young helmeted Milligan asked, Anybody seen a gun? Peter Sellers was the only one of us who had a show business background. His mother came from the Mendoza family, a well-known name in the theatre, and his father was a pit orchestra pianist. Peter was more professionally experienced than we were because he'd played drums in a band before the war. I was introduced to Peter at a radio broadcast I was doing for the third programme. I was very impressed with Peter, by his friendliness and by the uncanny way he had of becoming the person he was impersonating. I was always amazed at the way he could shrink himself down for Blue Bottle and then, seconds later, puff himself out for Blood Knock. Yet, when he was called upon to do his own natural voice, he was always worried. I can't, lads, he'd say. I don't know what I sound like. On a typical goon show recording day, I would arrive at the Camden Theatre at around 2.30, musing on which car Peter had rolled up in. He was always changing his cars. As I entered the stage door, I'd sing a burst of Return to Sarintor, in reply to which sellers lying in a prone position and playing the bongos would cry, It's Singo, the approaching tenor folks! 
and Milligan would announce my arrival with a naffy pianist rendition of We'll Keep a Welcome, and a shout of, Ah, the well-known danger to shipping has arrived! Ned of Wales is here! I'd reply with a raspberry, and then the jokes would begin, mostly gags of a scatological nature. Then it was time for our producer to try and exert some control over us and get us to have a look at the script. You could tell the producer by the worry lines on his forehead. This was the time we all loved best. Peter and I would fall about giggling as we read the script for the first time. Spike would watch anxiously for our reactions to his efforts before joining in the general laughter. Spike used to drive the studio managers mad with his insistence on getting the sound effects he wanted. In the beginning, when the programme was recorded on disc, it was extremely difficult to achieve the right sound effect. There were, I think, four turntables on the go simultaneously, with different sounds being played on each. Chickens clucking, Big Ben striking, donkeys braying, massive explosions, ship sirens, all happening at once. It was only when tape came into use that Spike felt really happy with the effects. Although there was one particular time when he wanted to record the sound of someone being hit with a sock full of custard. Now, he tried all sorts of ways to get the desired squelch, but to no avail. Eventually, he went into the Camden Theatre canteen and asked the very helpful Scottish lady behind the counter to make him an egg custard. Suddenly, Spike, she said, knowing that he sometimes ordered fancy meals on account of his weak stomach. Come back in 20 minutes. When he returned, the canteen lady proudly presented him with an earthenware bowl of egg custard, beautifully prepared with a sprinkling of nutmeg on the top. Here you are, Spike, she said warmly. Spike thanked her and immediately began to take off the grey woolen army socks he often wore. She watched in utter amazement as he proceeded to spoon the contents of the bowl into both socks. She gave a little whimper and ran into the kitchen. Back in the studio, Spike had already placed a sheet of three-ply wood near to a microphone. Swinging one of his socks round his head, he hurled it against the wood. The result wasn't quite what he wanted, so he did the same with the other sock. Alas, that too failed to produce the elusive splat he was looking for. Realising that he only had two feet and that nobody else would volunteer to try again, he stomped off crying, shit, because if truth were known, that was what he really wanted the sock to contain. The run through over, we would be joined by Wallace Greenslade, who, having finished his news-reading duties for the day, acted as our announcer and link man. Then the musicians would arrive, preceded by conductor Wally Stott, who always looked too frail to pick up his baton. When the third series began in November 1952, the Ray Ellington Quartet and Max Gelbray came into the show. By this time, the incomparable Peter Eaton had taken over as producer. Now, Peter would take no nonsense from any of us. I remember him having an argument with Peter Sellers about something or other, during which Sellers threatened to leave the show. All right, said Eaton, bugger off then. And Sellers, having started to leave the room, came back and sat down again. He and Spike worked well together. Eaton's work as a radio drama producer meant that he was prepared to experiment with sound effects, which was manna from heaven for Spike. The two musical items from Ray Ellington and Max Gellray proved very popular. Ray was a huge success, not only because of his music, but also because of his personality. It wasn't long before Spike was writing him into the script, with exchanges like, Are you the colour sergeant? To which the black Ellington would reply, Are you kidding? During the warm-up for the show, Peter Sellers, no mean drummer himself, would join Ray on the bongos. Max is a great harmonica player. Dutch by birth, he now lives in Los Angeles. 
where he's a counsellor at the Betty Ford Clinic. It says a lot for his musicianship that his playing on the Guncho tapes is still fresh today. Spike often put Max in the scripts with a Dutch expression or two. He was always referred to as Plugy. God knows why. Anyway, back at the Captain Theatre, with the arrival of Ray and Max, we were ready for a run-through with effects and orchestra. About this time, the pub next door was always a welcome sight. We'd nip in for a couple before the recording proper. It was always full of friends of ours and goon addicts. All of them would-be blue bottles and Eccles and Nettie's. Then it was back to the theatre, remembering to take a bottle of brandy and a pint of milk with us for the musical interludes, which might explain why the last part of the show was always so frenetic. The warm-up for the show was sometimes funnier than the show itself. It would begin with a jam session, with Peter playing the drums, Spike on trumpet, and Wally Stott's session musicians, some of the best in the country. Then Peter would announce that I was going to sing Falling in Love with Love. And while I was getting ready to sing, Spike would unclip the back of my braces without me knowing it. I would then step forward, having already released the front buttons of my braces, and launch into song. Along would come Spike, flexing his muscles. He would then put his hands up my jacket and pull my braces out. As he raised them aloft with a cry of triumph, I would get behind him and pull his trousers down. One night, in an excess of zeal, I pulled down his underpants as well, eliciting a gasp from the audience, followed by a round of applause, which Milligan, a well-built lad, gravely acknowledged before pulling his pants up. The nerve, the nerve. After that lot of nonsense, the real nonsense would begin as Wally Greenstater would ask for silence, wait for the green light, and with This is the BBC Home Service, diddly-pong, we were off. Some people, however good intention they are, it just doesn't quite go across.